This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship on Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There's a place for you here. For information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. morning's first lesson is from the book of Acts. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace and following, the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Holy wisdom, holy word. The second reading is from the book of Revelation. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun. 
for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Holy wisdom, holy word. The Gospel according to John, the fifth chapter. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called, in Hebrew, Bethzatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. At once, the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, the gospel of the Lord. In Exodus, when the people of Israel had come out of Egypt to begin their exodus journey toward the promised land. The journey did not begin well, because very shortly after they began, they ended up at Mount Sinai, where Moses, going up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, left the people down below who then instantly started worshiping the golden calf. And in disgust, God said, I've had enough of this people. I'm done with them. But Moses pled with God and said, you have to go with us. If you don't go with us, how will anyone know that we are your people? And finally, God relented and said, all right, I will go with you. And Moses asked God to tell him what his plans were. And he God invited Moses to come up on the mountain where he showed him his plans. Hidden in the cleft of a rock, God passed by, and all Moses got to see was his, what scripture calls euphemistically, his backside. And I always thought that was a rather strange passage, why it is that all Moses got to see was God's posterior. But seems to me that 
the more we look in Scripture and the more we try to live as those who follow Christ, all we ever get to see is God's backside. Yesterday, I mean, um, last Sunday, we heard the reading about Peter, who in a vision is told to come to Caesarea and to bring to them the gospel. And in today's first reading, we hear about Paul receiving a vision and being called to come and bring the gospel to the people in, oh, let me see, uh, Caesarea? Oh, what was it? I'm blanking. Look at your reading. Philippi, thank you very much. That was a test. And um, in both cases, both Peter and Paul arrive there, barely open their mouths, and the gospel takes root and blossoms. When Paul comes to Philippi, he finds Lydia already a worshiper of God. When Peter arrives in Caesarea, he finds a people already hungry for the gospel and instantly receiving the Spirit. If it was their job to sell the gospel, well, they certainly aren't making cold calls. Because by the time they get there, they find that the Spirit is already there. In both cases, they receive an advance call to come there and to preach the gospel. God always seems to be one step ahead of us. Which is perhaps a good thing. Because if it was up to me to figure out where we are going, what the next step was, Lordy, we would still be wandering in the wilderness. We would still be lost. In today's gospel lesson, we hear about Jesus coming to this man by the pool of Bethsatha. And we're told that there are these porticos around it, which are basically long columned porches. And as in most cities, wherever you find a public roof, here the homeless, the sick, the babbling, the insane have gathered the one place they can find shelter. And this pool was rumored to have healing properties. Jesus comes to a certain man there and he asks him, do you want to be healed? 
I don't think this is just a social question. I don't think he just came there and picked someone at random and said, hey, what do you say? You want to be healed? Rather, there's a barb in his question, a barb that the man hears as evidenced by the way he responds. What he hears is, do you want to be healed? To which he defensively responds, I try to get down to the water, but I can't get there fast enough. Someone always gets there ahead of me. The excuses pour out of him. Maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe that is indeed the case. He simply, because of his infirmity, can't get there soon enough. Maybe he's making excuses for himself. Maybe he's found it easier to simply live by that pool on what he can beg than to really engage life. One way or another, though, Jesus tells him to stand up, take his mat, and walk. Notice that Jesus doesn't wait for him to say, yes. He doesn't ask him, do you believe that I am the Son of Man? He doesn't ask him if he believes that Jesus has the power to heal him. He simply heals him. And we learn later that the man doesn't even know who it is who has done this for him. I was watching this uh, HBO series on Chernobyl, which begins with one of the men responsible for trying to clean up the mess there writing down his remembrances, and he talks about the danger of lies. That the danger of lies is not that they obscure the truth. The danger of lies is that if we hear enough of them, we can no longer recognize the truth. And I wonder sometimes if this doesn't describe the situation in which we live now where more and more, it seems, people have figured out how to lie to get what they want, how to bend the truth to make it serve their means. Until we come to a fact, until we come to a state where there is no longer truth and lie, but only alternate facts, where each is received and given equal weight because we are so used to being lied to, we can no longer recognize truth when it comes to us. And if that is the case, then what future can we have? What action can we take? What star can we navigate by to wander through this wilderness? What voice can we turn to for healing? And as the church especially, this can be a frustrating problem because we who profess to hold the truth, who profess to have a word of healing, 
find that that word is received simply as one more in a catalog of voices. One more in a catalog of claims. Why should we pay any more attention to your voice, to your witness, than we do to all these other voices who are trying to get us to do what they want? Who are trying to separate us from our money? Who are trying to somehow manipulate us for their own good? And it can be paralyzing. But into that situation, the backside of God is a comforting sight. Because it tells me that God has gone ahead of me. And even when I cannot recognize God, even when I cannot even ask for healing, even when I am unaware of my own motivations, my own blindness, my own ignorance, I can know that God is already present there before I even recognize God and is transforming that moment. In a brief conversation, in a brief conversation with Alan, before the service, we, we were talking about, you know, how do you discern what God wants you to do? I said, well, you know, I almost never know what God wants me to do today. Yesterday, I can take a stab at it. But I can never see it today. And yet when I look backwards, I see God's guiding hand, God's guiding presence, bringing me to each moment and to each circumstance. And today, all I can do is worship the backside of God and bless God for going out ahead of me. Because it's also worth noting that at a time when lifespans were short, when Alexander the Great, people like Charlemagne, like Genghis Khan, by the time they were in their mid-twenties, had conquered half the earth. When Shakespeare wrote his first play in his twenties, when Chaucer wrote his first major work in his 20s, and by the way, I hate them all, Christ comes to this man at the end of his life, 38 years sitting by this pool and brings healing to him. As if to emphasize the fact that he brings nothing to this. This is surely and completely an act of God's mercy and God's healing. And as if in an afterthought at the end, it says, oh, and this healing took place on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was that day of rest at the end of creation. It comes as a divine sigh of satisfaction. A recognition of completeness 
and goodness in what God has created. And here in this Sabbath moment, God brings healing and completeness to this man. And so Christ continues to come to us when we can't recognize Christ, when we are not ready for Christ, when we are so deeply entrenched in our ways that we see no way to bump out of our ruts, when we have so accepted our illness, our nearsightedness, our depression, whatever it might be, that we think this is the way life must be. Christ comes to us when we have been set in our ways so long that we think this is the way life will end. And before we can even recognize his presence, brings healing, brings correction, gently and mercifully takes us up as God once took up the clay of creation and reforms us. And it's this one that we continue to follow. Jesus doesn't say, get out there and sell the gospel and I'll see you in Jerusalem. He goes, I've gone out ahead of you and I will be with you till the end of the age. And eventually, eventually the one who has gone out before us will wait for us there in that heavenly Jerusalem, in that new rightness, in that new shalom, there to welcome us into that new creation. Amen.